Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today's conversation is about Toronto's affordable housing crisis. With sky-high prices, a shortage of listings, and a tightening of lending rules, new home buyers are finding it increasingly difficult to purchase a home where they can comfortably settle down and raise a family. And as Toronto continues to prosper as the fastest-growing region in North America, the competition for available housing seems to only be getting worse. It's a problem that's top of mind for many. And as it continues to magnify, there's a greater and more urgent need for action and relief. To better understand the issues and how it can be addressed, I'm joined by Cherise Berta, Executive Director at Ryerson City Building Institute. Cherise, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get into talking about affordable housing, maybe you can tell me a little bit more about the Ryerson City Building Institute. What is it and how does it differ from the university's planning program? Um, and when was it established? Okay, well, it, it it was established in 2014. It really got rolling around 2015. And it is a university-wide institute. Uh, we work a lot with the planning school, but we're multidisciplinary. So we try to engage and bring in expertise throughout the university. We're um, sort of a policy uh, think tank, think and do tank. Um, We produce a lot of uh, public policy reports on things that matter to the city. Um, So things like affordable housing, transit, street safety, development, um, you know, preserving the green belt, stuff like that. Um, But we also uh, host a lot of public events that are um, creative and find ways to engage both the faculty and staff here at Ryerson, but also um, external partners and the public. So what was the the impetus for setting this this institute up? What, how did it come about? Well, I didn't set it up, but okay. um, my um, the founders are um, Ann Golden mm-hmm. and uh, Ken Greenberg, mm-hmm. who are well known to your audience. Sure. And they went about, um, they really wanted to start an organization that could be an important voice in the city and the region and even the country. And so they decided to establish the City Building Institute and they needed a home and they came to Ryerson. So how does it compare to University of Toronto's uh, School of Cities, which is also very new and fresh. Is it the same or are they somewhat different? I think they're quite different. Uh, The School for Cities is um, essentially a, um, you know, a agglomeration of all the faculty, um, all the smart academics that work on urban issues throughout um, the the university. So it's quite big. It's, um, you know, central and resourced by the university. Whereas our institute's kind of a small little group. We only have a staff of four people and um, we need to find, um, we need to fundraise like any nonprofit organization. So it's a struggle to keep a little staff 
producing the amount of work that we do while trying to do as much as we can to be engaged in the university with academics and with students. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you've certainly, I guess, in the last couple of years, two, three years, you've produced a lot of material, you've hosted a lot of events, uh, and with a staff of only four, and I imagine some volunteers, you've certainly punched well above your weight. And affordable housing or the affordable housing crisis is something that um, your group is, is taking a look at. And um, so let's get into that. You know, I remember back in the early 2000s when I was a first-time home buyer, and I had enough savings to partner with a friend and buy a duplex with about 10% down. And that was at a time when on, on an average household income, one could buy a house, whether it's a semi, a townhouse, a duplex, or maybe even a single, all generally within reasonable commuting distance to the city's core. But today, most first-time buyers with decent incomes cannot afford ground-oriented housing in the city. Most are forced to travel to the outer suburbs or places like Hamilton to find something they can afford, and even then they might not purchase because they would be faced with a significant commuting time. And if commuting is not their thing, then they turn to a condo or they rent. But now even those options are starting to thin out with low vacancy rates, rising rents, and escalating condo prices. And unfortunately, average incomes for most occupations have not been able to keep up. And so it's not surprising to read in the papers that the number one issue for many Torontonians is the concern of affordable housing, which explains why almost 60% of renters living in the GTA and 38% of homeowners are seriously considering moving away from the region because there is no chance of affording the kind of home or condominium that would allow them to live comfortably or raise a family. So let me start off by asking, how did we get to this point? <laughs> um your story is so familiar. Um, don't you wish that at the time you'd bought 10 houses? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd, Absolutely. You'd be a multimillionaire. Oh, sure. I'm glad um, it did. You I won thought. You won the housing lottery. I say that people who bought a home, especially a, a single family home in the city of Toronto 10 years ago or longer, won the lottery. It's really a matter of... Um, of those people who now are trying to buy or have been trying to buy in the last four or five years, I would really say that the crisis really, we started seeing the accelerating uh, prices um, in 2015, 2016, and then they really shot up from there. I think what's changing in people's minds, um, but not yet in policies, is that this used to be that affordable housing was an issue for um, uh, for you know subsidized housing. It was always an issue of social housing. How do we build more units? How do we fix Toronto community housing? Things like that. And now um, we no longer say affordable housing. We say housing affordability because it's um, it's a rain. It affects everybody unless you're making you know two hundred thousand and and change or more um most people middle class earners this is an issue of the middle class it's an issue um for everybody and it um is i would say disproportionately affecting the younger demographic because they didn't enter into the housing lottery (laughs) so now they're in a situation where they're um they're starting families, they're upsizing. And um, so I think it's like, it's kind of a coincidence, the, the, the prices have gone up at the same time that the millennial um, 
the group of millennials, which is huge, are getting into their house buying age where they're starting to upsize where they're thinking well I don't really want to rent anymore I'm getting married Um, I don't want to live in a one-bedroom condo what the heck do I do so I think it's really those two things have converged at the same time and there's a whole bunch of reasons that prices have gone up I mean we've heard economists talk about this you know a lot Uh, we know that a lot of it is is um, is investment not just foreign investment but domestic investment we know that real estate is a um is a safer commodity safer asset for 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 investors you know it's no no surprise that after the 2008 um crash if you can call it that it wasn't really a crash in in Toronto or Canada um that's when we really saw a big um recovery phase in housing as it as people turned to that asset rather than investing in the stock market um and then um it kind of bubbles from there as we know how so what what happened you you mentioned 2015 2016 is where the crisis really began I guess what what happened in that year or is is it just that um, prices just got way out of hand at that point for this millennial cohort or, or are there other factors at play? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an economist. I can't really pinpoint what the issue was, but it really was the time where we started seeing um, price acceleration in um, in in houses and condos start to go up at a trajectory that we'd never really seen. Um well, since the late 1980s. <laughs> so, um, and I think the other challenge is that the price point is not keeping up with fundamentals. And I think that's really where the problem was first identified is where it's not, it's, it's so, it's not that the fundamentals are not keeping up with the price growth. So we've got, you know, employment, um, sorry, we've got income and other economic fundamentals that have sort of a, um, a growth that's, you know, steady climbing growth, um, you know, inflation at 2%, things like that. And then you have price acceleration of, uh, of housing going up, you know, 10%. And then in one year, it went up 33%, which was a little bit crazy. That's a whole other story. But when we saw the detaching of prices from economic fundamentals, that's when you start to see runaway housing. That's when you start to see it get beyond the possibility of, of most households being being able to afford a house much. So then who are the people buying these houses? I mean, that's, I think that's, that's the kind of question in a lot of people's minds, you know, uh, who are these people? Are they, are they um, consolidating several condos to buy a house? Is it, um, is it the foreign investors? I mean, I'm thinking about ground oriented housing. I'm not mm-hmm. really thinking about condos. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. What's, what, what do you think? Um, I, well, we know that there's a lot of investment coming out from outside the 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 province and we know there's a lot of investment coming from outside the country so there is foreign investment going on um even though a lot of it isn't able to be tracked because of you know how how people um are able to you know access a property um but i would say that the you know a lot of people who are buying houses are just ordinary people who are stretching themselves very, very thin. 
because they want to buy a house. And so, um, you know, they're either getting help from their parents. I think we're finding a lot of millennials have um, boomer parents who are quite wealthy because they bought, you know, years ago and their house is worth a lot. We're reaching a point, and that's why the that's why the uh, condo market is going up as high as as it is, as much as it is, because it really is the price point that people can afford to enter the market. The detached market had become so completely ridiculous. Um, most people can't afford, you know, they start at a million dollars. Now we've seen the detached market fall um, since you know, it's peak in February or March, 2017. And it's, it's, it's really just corrected though. It hasn't fallen. It hasn't been a crash. It's simply, um, the froth was taken out of its steam and it, and it landed kind of back where it was on the trajectory before it went, you know, at a vertical pace, but the, uh, condo market is still increasing. Um, you know, monthly it goes up and up and up because it's the only place where people can afford to enter the market. So there's a, a, a big competition for that. But again, for for those who want to have something larger in a one-bedroom condo uh, when they're starting to settle down and have a family, I think this is where this the notion of a crisis is, is coming up more and more, that uh, people are being forced to uh, um, leave the city, find a, uh, another um, community or another municipality where their dollar can, can take them a lot further. Um, and I, I'm just wondering... Are we are we at a tipping point now where um, the city is really the character of the city and the quality of life in the city is is uh, almost irreversible? Um, I don't think it is. I think we um, I think we can reverse some of these trends, and I'll talk about that in a second. But I do want to point to Vancouver as a sort of um, a point that we that we need to aspire to not reaching. And one of the challenges in Vancouver is um, not only are they losing a lot of their talent, but small businesses can't survive because they can't even, they can't attract people for low wage jobs. People can't live in the city in Vancouver or anywhere close. So um, businesses have actually shut down in downtown Vancouver because they can't get the staff to run it and you know when you've kind of gotten to peak unaffordability when you can't find people to work (laughs) at your business so and in Toronto we're seeing a similar challenge in that all of the, the the highest proportion of um sort of sales jobs service jobs lower income jobs um live in the furthest parts of the city. So Northeast Scarborough, North Etobicoke. And these people face the toughest, longest commutes to get to um, the jobs downtown because for sales and service, um, the best jobs are downtown. They're the ones that are paid the highest. They're the ones with the good benefits and opportunities to move up. So they will take that horrible commute. And keep in mind that most of the commutes from those corners of the city are by bus. Lots of lots of transfers because we haven't built higher order transit to these parts of the city. So the issue becomes one of um, 
of of transit as well. Like, how do we um, bring our 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 transit and 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 planning our growth where 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 the growth is where the need is and transit together that's a whole other discussion but we are seeing that challenge where people are moving further and further away and it's getting more more difficult for them to get to work because of the commutes so um to go back and talk about your first question which is um people are increasingly having to choose between squeezing into a condo or traveling two hours to a detached house on the suburban periphery. And neither of those is optimal. In fact, it's this is where we talk about the missing middle. A lot of people have different um, definitions of what the missing middle is. And there's no, I don't think there's a right one or a wrong one. But I really like to frame it as that in between the high rise in the city and the detached house on the suburban periphery and looking at, um, you know, a suite of options for different family sizes and different family budgets, um, types of scales of housing that can fit into all kinds of different neighborhoods, be it the Yellow Belt or downtown or along our avenues or redevelopment projects where, you know, plazas are, things like that. That's that's the opportunity that we can talk about. But really, that's what's missing. And I think the, the reason I think we can reverse this trend is I think we can figure out ways to build more of that housing um, because there's so much opportunity for it. There is no lack of of, of, of land, of, 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 of area of land to build this stuff. And that, that was going to be my, my first question, just in terms of solutions that are being thrown out there as yeah. ideas. A few months ago, Doug Ford, now Premier Doug Ford, was, was campaigning. He talked, we, we had that message that, you know, maybe open up the green belt. Um, and he, he, you know, very quickly uh, went back on that idea or pulled back away from that idea. And the development community has often said, well, we just, we need more land. Um, there's, it's a supply issue. And, you know, there are other solutions out there that are being proposed. You talked a little bit about using plazas and the missing middle, but politicians right now, Mayor John Tory and uh, Jennifer Kiesmat, have talked about increasing or adding, uh, for John Tory, it's 40,000 units over 12 years, and Kiesmat, it's 100,000 units over 10 years. Both uh, have talked about leveraging city lands, different incentives. Um, in fact, I think Jennifer Kiesmet talked a lot about using city-owned lands to help bolster, bolster that. The Toronto Region Board of Trade had talked about selling land at a discount to encourage developers to to build more, a more affordable housing. So where do you line up with all those, those ideas? Are, <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack there. There's let's let's unpack them in two ways. One of them is the greenbelt issue, opening up land in general, and then there's the issue of opening up city owned land. Okay, so let's start with the opening up a land in general. And that's kind of synonymous with building more supply. So there's a call, we need more supply, we need supply to to um, to deal with housing affordability. And I would argue that it's not about more supply, it's about the right supply. And first of all, um, 
if we were to open up the green belt, um, first of all, we're not bumping against the green belt. We're using, we're consuming. If you if you drive out to Brampton or anywhere on the edge of the suburban um, line, you see housing being built. There, we're still building housing in the suburban periphery. The question is, is that the answer for Toronto? Do we want people to to have to leave Toronto and live two hours away? People do not want to drive for for two hours in traffic um, to come to the city. That's not the answer. We don't want to we don't want to lose people living in the city and contributing to our urban experience, to our urban life here. So the answer comes with optimizing how we build um, family friendly housing, a whole suite of housing in the city. Driving two hours away, opening up the green belt, loosening the growth plan so that we can build more urban sprawl might be a way for developers to build more of that housing. But it won't be a way to solve our challenges in Toronto in terms of building housing here. So that said, um, we need to build the right type of supply of housing. And we um, conducted a study late last year called Bedrooms in the Sky. We partnered with Urban Nation on this study. We used um, their data, we did the analysis, and we found that we are building so much housing in in the region. We're at an all-time high. We've never had this many condo units in the pipeline. We studied what is coming down the pipeline over the next, what we're going to see rolling out over the next five years. We have 105,000 units in the pipeline under under development. Um, however, the majority of those are one bedrooms. And the majority of those are in um, buildings that are over 20 stories. So we are not good at at encouraging the development of 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 um, of multi-unit housing that is family friendly and that is taking um, advantage of locations throughout our city, um, we seem to put condos in you know high rises in downtown locations and. Uh, detached houses on the periphery and we are really really bad at building that missing middle and that's the reason family-friendly housing is so expensive because there's not enough of it and simply building more of it in the periphery isn't going to help with housing affordability in Mm -hmm. the city so the i guess the missing middle housing just so i understand is it uh, anywhere between, say, a townhouse complex development up to, say, a six-story building with units that have two, three, four bedroom uh, layouts? Is that is that kind of what you're thinking? We, we use the term more broadly. We look at it as what's missing between um, one bedrooms in high rises in the city and detached houses further out. So it's kind of everything in between. And it's looking at it from an income perspective. So that it's middle middle income, um, but it's also looking at it from typology and from location. So in terms of typology, yes, the purists will say the missing middle are walk-ups and nothing over five stories. But we also believe that mid-rise is great options for family-friendly housing um, in our residential neighborhoods because mid-rise along our main streets, along our avenues, um, in some of our um, more, you know, 
on the edge of the green of sorry on the edge of the yellow belt um, really help with that scale that um, that provides for two and three bedroom units. It's it's connected to the community. People can be part of these residential communities. So and and it can even be three bedrooms in a a vertical living tower. Right there's there's options um, that we need to develop but we're not developing enough of them and there's a whole bunch of reasons we can get into that in terms of zoning in terms of approvals process processes things like that but I think that the 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 sort of the challenge I would put out there to um mayoral candidates and and for for counselors is we know that we need to build more of the right supply not just all supply everywhere because if you do that we're just going to end up with more of the same there's no shortage of these one bedroom condos that are being built for investors we need to keep in mind that 94% of those units are sold before the shovel hits the ground and most of them are for investors that's not helping end users um, so the solutions involve how do we build the right type of housing and how do we build it so we ensure that end users are having access to it? And those um, are going to be, um, I think, the biggest challenge. But if we can solve that puzzle of how to do that rather than just how to build more of what we're currently building, yeah, that's going to be remains, it remains a puzzle. I, I was, I'm just um, thinking back to an interview I had with uh, Richard Witt, who's a executive principal with Quadrangle and yeah. we had a, a, a discuss, podcast discussion about architecture and we at one point we got into the discussion about mid-rise and um, the issues that they have and the developers have in, in delivering mid-rise on avenues in desirable areas. The cost to deliver these mid-rise um, is, is, is quite significant mm-hmm. and, um, and they're finding that uh, you know whether it's uh, excavating for a high rise or excavating for a mid rise, the costs are almost similar. So, in order to accommodate um, those who have, um, uh, who are sort of in the in the middle income bracket, um, the the price points may not pencil out for those for those groups. I'm also thinking, you mentioned the yellow belt, and a yellow belt, mm-hmm. that expression mm-hmm. comes, I think, a few years ago. There was a plan, is it Meslin? I forgot the name of the planner who came up with the turn the yellow belt. Um, Gil, Gil Meslin. Gil, Gil yeah. Meslin. He's um, great. And that, is, that basically refers to looking at the official plan. Does and the color. Map and the color. <laughs> it's like and, the purple lands. And, are yeah, and most of the, of the lands that are stable, low rise, are, are colored yellow. Um, and so that those areas are stable uh and to think about you know maybe intensifying gentle density increase um the nimbyism is still a force to be reckoned with and uh, that that just seems like a, a an almost insurmountable challenge for every small infill site that is going to go from a say a single to a duplex to a triplex you're facing community resistance because of perceived uh, um, negative impacts, even though they may not be so bad. Um, so, uh, have that has that been thought about in, in any way, <laughs> or is that just is that sort of a, an underlying problem that needs that needs all to be those tackled? things? Everything you're talking about. Um, I've put out a couple studies with uh, in, um, 
that I've collaborated with the Home Builders Association, Ontario Home Builders Association. One of them was called Make Way for Mid-Rise. And it got into all of the problems that you discussed that it's basically a lot of the costs are the same whether you build a seven-story building or a 37. So people are going to go for the, the top one. But what it really comes down to is um, as of right zoning. That's the first. That's the first step. If you're going to as of right zone for, you know, this this avenue, like like for example, um, uh, Eglinton, where the cross cross town um, LRT is going, was as of right zoned for for a particular scale of mid rise. Um, so if you if you as of right zone, um, you can as of right zone for anything in Vancouver. They're they're zoning particular um, areas for for rental so it's not it's beyond inclusionary zoning it's like let's take this area and let's zone it to build rental so you could as of right zone areas for mid-rise you can as of right zone for end user you could say it's rental you could say it's mixed use whatever it is but we need to do more of that um a b if we're going to streamline the approvals process and remove red tape let's remove it for what we want rather than remove it for everything and I think that that's critical because if we just remove it for everything then we're just making it easier for developers to have that same sort of conundrum do I build a mid-rise or do I build a high-rise I'm going to build a high-rise so we have to have an advantage there for the type of stuff that we want to build so um, zone it um, remove the red tape for for that particular type of housing be it rental mid-rise, end-user, all those things. And I would say engage the community in a type of development permit process or a community permit process where the community is engaged in, um, I think a really good example was um, Mervish Village Mm -hmm. and West Bank. Mm -hmm. The community was engaged from the very beginning. They're very happy. They're getting what what they want and they're doing a beautiful job there that can be done elsewhere it doesn't it it should be the norm and I think that one of the challenges is that people look at high-rises when they're you know on their porches from in their yellow belt going I don't want that in my backyard right and that's what they assume a building is going to be I live in a mid-rise and I know that when my building was was being thought of everybody was against it and then when I moved in another mid-rise was being proposed and people were knocking on my door let's stop this and I said well you know we actually need um, more people in our neighborhood to support our local businesses we love our main street here right but we're losing population as people age so let's let's support ways to get you know the right type of um of development that we want and people are so focused on height they're so focused on density and they're so focused on parking the thing people need to be focused on is ground level what's going on on our street what's in what what does our public realm look like start asking for what you want along your sidewalk um, that you want to engage in and I think that having those discussions with the community are going to help with that um, so if there there are different ways, different ways that we can um, take the planning tools that we have and gear them towards the type of the type of housing that we need to build. Because it's true that these, if we continue to build 
more of what we have, then that missing middle housing is going to grow increasingly rare Mm -hmm. and even get more and more expensive until we figure out how to build more of that supply. Then the supply argument makes sense. So what's the next step then? Like who, who takes the lead in in trying to solve this this crisis, uh, a crisis that is, um, as I mentioned in my intro, seems to be getting more and more urgent to solve. And so, where does the where does the buck stop? Is it with the mayor? Is it with the province, the federal government? Is it a combination of all three? Do other stakeholders have to get involved? I mean, it just mm-hmm. it just seems that there's no. Um, easy solution to all this. There's a lot of ideas being thrown around, and you've got some some great ideas, but uh, something needs to be done soon. So, who do you who do you see taking the lead on this? You know, I think really it's going to come down to um, you know some of these issues are provincial, some of these issues are municipal, and some of these issues um, like some are at the city level and some are in the neighborhood. So it's I think. You know, it really comes down to the leadership. I think we need a mayor who's going to stand up and say, this is what we want to build and, you know, task city staff with figuring out how to do it and respect their expert opinion. I mean, we've seen this play out before in transit planning. We've seen, um, you know, people, um, we've seen heels being dragged because we're not, we're not listening to staff and we're not looking externally for good ideas. These, a lot of these problems have been solved elsewhere, right? It's not new. It's not, it's not specific to Toronto. Yeah. We can look to Chicago and look at how they've been able to, um, you know, thoughtfully develop some of their employment lands and, um, you know, take those and make mixed-use residential mm-hmm. um, commercial development. And this is something that um, our co-founder, Ken Greenberg, talks about all the time, is utilizing some of our employment lands. We don't want to utilize all our employment lands. We particularly want to use those that are um, adjacent to rapid transit because we want to build density around them. And we want to think thoughtfully about how do you – um, harness those in a way that is going to um, uh, that is going to result in affordable housing mm-hmm. and not just more luxury housing. And how do we make sure that um, we get some sort of public benefit out of it? Mm-hmm. So in Chicago, for example, they require you know fees and density bonuses and things like that um, that then they can use to invest in things like affordable housing or transit or things like that. So there's different models that we can learn from other cities. I used to live in Victoria. Do you know that Victoria, the city of Victoria is denser than Toronto? I did not <clears throat> I did not know that even though it's, I've been there many times. It's a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that their yellow belt, I don't think it's called that there, but their residential neighbor, neighborhoods are stratified. Mm-hmm. So they have all these big old Victorian housing ha, Vic, Victorian houses. And most of those are subdivided. And they're not just subdivided into rentals. They're subdivided into um like unit housing for for purchase so if you go onto a victoria real estate page and you sort of scan to see what their resale market looks like you're gonna pop up a whole bunch of um condo units that are in old houses that have been um stratified they have like a there's their strata um 
uh, way of doing things. We, we seem to have only like the condominium way of doing things. So it's learning from places in our own country. And then I, you know, you mentioned transit oriented development, looking at, um, joint development with, um, with, with developers. Um, we're gonna, I'm leading us kind of down into the path of unlocking city lands. But if we look at other cities like New York or places like Hong Kong, London, even Montreal, they're figuring out ways to, um, unlock their public lands, but not, not give not sell them I mean I've talked to um um planners in New York that say never ever sell your land if you've got public land hold on to it lease it figure out how to leverage it the public land is like the most important thing we have in the city is let's leverage it let's not sell it for under market value so we say please pretty please could you give us some few units of affordable housing we'll give it to you for below market cost so we can get back some affordable housing these other jurisdictions that i'm talking about are hanging on to it and they're saying hey developer let's partner we've got land we've got transit those are two amazing assets. And, and that's the role you would see for uh, Toronto's agency, the Create TO, yes. uh, to, take, to take that lead. I know that this is, a, again, it's a crisis, and there's a, there's a kind of a, a building uh, concern, I think, out there, especially by uh, millennials. Are you hopeful for the city and the province to be able to solve this? Do you think that it, it can be solved and that... Forces will come together, they'll unify, and, and we'll figure this out. I think we have to, because otherwise we are going to lose talent. I think we have to sort this out. There, is, there are solutions. I've just, I've rambled on, but I've identi- we've identified together a whole bunch of them, you know, unlocking our city lands, but making sure that we partner with developers. You know, the, the way that these cities have done that by partnering with developers is that they share in the profits so that you actually have revenue coming in. If you're, if you're, if you're leasing or renting whatever you've built there, then you're getting rent. You're, you're sharing in the revenue. You're sharing in the revenue of the sales. That's a good, that's good news. You're creating affordability you're going to create a mix of housing in Montreal. They just did that at one of their transit stations. They partnered with developers and they they built a mix of, um, of affordable housing, subsidized housing and market housing and commercial and mixed and, you know, kept held onto the land and the revenue is coming in and they can use that to invest in more transit or more affordable housing or whatever public services. So let's think of creative ways that we that we harness and leverage the public land that we have so that we're getting revenue out of it and it's a win-win situation for everybody. Let's think of ways to 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 stratify um, the the yellow belt and and get more housing out of that. Let's figure out ways to um, to look at the land, op- the, the, the possibilities for development in, in our city, like not outside the city, not in the green belt, but there are parking lots, there are plazas, there is the yellow belt, there's avenues, there are lots of places to build it, but as you identified, it's too expensive now to build 
that scale of housing in those locations. So we need to get creative in our zoning, our approvals process, and any other types of um, tools that we can bring out um, and work with developers to build what we need. The employment lands, another solution. So lots of solutions out there. It sounds like it's really leadership that we need and decision-making and um, corralling all of these uh, stakeholders together to to dive in, evaluate the solutions, and and, and work together. Um, it's going to be it's an ongoing topic, and I think more and more people are tuned into it because it's it's impacting more and more of us. It'll be interesting to see how things play out over the next year or two or or beyond. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.